I'm Andrew Denary with the Space Foundation, and you're listening to the Space for You podcast. Space for You is designed to tell the stories of the amazing people who make today's space exploration possible. Today, we are joined by Peter Beck. Peter is the founder and chief executive of Rocket Lab, a space technology company and global leader in dedicated small satellite launches. Since founding the business in 2006, Peter has grown Rocket Lab to become a globally recognized industry leader in space and a billion-dollar company employing hundreds of world-class engineers and technicians. Peter established Rocket Lab's Electron Orbital Launch Program in 2013. Electron is the world's first fully carbon composite launch vehicle powered by 3D printed electric turbo pump fed rocket engines. Since the first Electron launch in 2017, Rocket Lab has delivered scores of satellites to orbit, enabling operations in space, debris mitigation, Earth observation, ship and airplane tracking, and radio communications. Peter also oversees the development of Rocket Lab's satellite program, Photon, which develops spacecraft buses tailored for a range of small satellite missions to low Earth orbit, lunar, and interplanetary destinations. Thank you for joining us today, Peter. Yeah, thank you very much. You've had an interest in rockets since you were a child, long before New Zealand or Australia had an established space agency. Do you remember what fascinated you most about rockets in space as a child? Yeah, I think you can go back very to a very, very early age. Um, I remember, you know, my father would tell the story that he, when, he, when he took me outside, probably I was about three or four, and uh, pointed up to the sky and we, we watched a satellite going overhead. And, um, you know, I, I remember you know, him telling me that we, we had this conversation about, um, you know, that, that satellite was man-made. And, and I naturally, you know, a child would ask, well, all the, are all the stars in the sky man-made? And, and he pointed out that, you know, those are suns and they have planets around them and there could be some somebody looking back at us right now. And ever since that moment, that was kind of the moment that set it all off where I can go outside and just look at the stars and, and imagine for, for hours and hours. And, and that, that, that's what really sparked the whole passion with space really off. And there's only two things that, that really do that, and that one is engineering and one is space. So it was, it was almost set in stone from the beginning that, that I would end up here. It's great. I can make my own stars, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, you got to be careful. You got to be careful doing that, as it turns out. So, tell us how Rocket Lab was born. So, it, it sort of started with a, a, almost a rocket pilgrimage, where I went to the states in 2007, and I went and visited all of the places that I dreamed about working. So, I went and visited lots of NASA centers and Lockheed and, and a bunch of the you know the, the space companies. And I really realized two things. Firstly, the things that I felt were super important, uh, in that case, in small launch and small spacecraft, weren't really being addressed. And also learned that the things that I was doing in my own kind of workshop at home was, was really not too dissimilar to what was happening out in, in the Mojave Desert. So I kind of had this realization on the way back on the plane that um, in some in some respects I was quite disappointed because I was kind of expecting everybody to agree with what I felt about small launch and, and small satellites. And then on, on the other half, really excited that I just needed to do this myself. And, uh, you know, I doodled the Rocket Lab logo on the plane. And by the time I landed, um, I was ready to incorporate Rocket Lab, quit my job and the rest is history. That's great. So out of disappointment, there was opportunity there. <laughs> pretty much. Yeah, I wish it was a more inspiring story, but that's pretty much it. So how did it feel then to see that first Rocket Lab launch? Well, I think, you know, for me personally, um, I was just immensely proud of the team. Uh, you know, a, a Rocket Lab is not one person. Um, you know, it's 
it's a it's a you know 500 of the most passionate and, and dedicated and brilliant people that i could put together from all around the world um so everybody had a lot riding on that first vehicle and you know it, it would have been a perfect flight to orbit other than uh, we had a, a misconfigured uh, third party ground system is actually a flight termination uh, software box was not tipped so what it was a it was a perfect flight apart from that but it probably you know the first flight was was great uh, the second flight where you know it was a flawless deployment to orbit and we circularized and we did absolutely everything that's that's kind of the point in time where we I knew that right now now we have a product it's time to to get this product out to the marketplace and, and really do some good but as you look across rocket lab now you know we're the I believe it's the fourth most launched rocket in the world but I would say that Really, it's. I feel like we're 25, maybe 30% done at a squeeze. You know, small launch has been solved, but there's just so much more to do. Um, you know, satellites are, are the next thing that we're really tackling to really democratise ideas in orbit, getting on uh, ideas and, and innovation getting on orbit. So, although you know the first rocket was naturally incredible, you know, really it, it, it was a very, very, the very, a very early step in the whole genesis of the company. So which mission that you conducted so far has been the most challenging and why? Most challenging? They're all challenging. Like there's never, there's never a mission where you're, you're, you're slouching back in your seat and, and, you know, technically one of the missions we did uh, that was pretty challenging is we took a spacecraft to, we first went into an elliptical orbit, then we, uh, we ignited our carry upper stage engine and took it to a really high orbit. Um, then we, um, actually there's more to it than that. So we, we needed to uh, avoid the South American radiation anomaly. So we kind of threaded the needle and flew up under it and then popped up and then we circularized the orbit. Then we raised the orbit to uh, really high, almost up into Mio, deployed the spacecraft and then we did a, a second burn and basically disposed of our, our kick stage by putting it into a really, really highly elliptical orbit and burning it up. So those were, you know, a bunch of different maneuvers, some really sick, tricky GNC. Um, so that that was a fun mission. But uh, you know, the mission for the NRO uh, to have the the NRO as a customer, you know, that that's a no kidding customer. Um, and that was, you know, that was personally very satisfying because you know we had very high orbital accuracy requirements and and a lot of requirements there, and the team pulled that off flawlessly. Personally, though, one of the best for me was NASA. A VCLS mission we did a couple of years ago was was really that 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 meant a lot personally because don't forget you know my my original passion was and dream was to go and work for NASA and here we here we were actually delivering some really important scientific payloads to orbit so that 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 was that was a moment for sure that's a dream come true there mm, yep yep excellent be careful what you wish for. <laughs> Why is it important for you to have launches at the frequency of once a week? Well, I think if you're if you're launching at once a week, there's a couple of things that have happened. Um, one, uh, you know, you are deploying infrastructure in orbit at, at, at that kind of rate, then you're building something pretty spectacular. And um, you know, a lot of space companies have 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 visions. Well, we all have visions, but um, and they can be putting people on Mars or um, mining asteroids or there's, there's, you know, there's always a core purpose for a lot of space companies. For us, uh, you know, our core purpose is to build infrastructure in orbit to improve life on Earth. That's the reason why we, why we do what we do. And if you're launching at one a week, then you're building some pretty spectacular infrastructure that is going to have a really big impact. So I think 
you know ultimately that's 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 why that's important and without without frequency and access to a domain whether it be seed land or space you haven't got anything so um, to get to that point then you, you've really created uh, an ease of access that really will enable wonderful things to happen of course you know we've all been impacted by the coronavirus pandemic can you tell us specifically how it has impacted rocket lab and your customers yeah, absolutely. So it's a crazy time for sure. So, you know, within within Rocket Lab, apart from, you know, New Zealand uh, took a, a really hard shutdown stance. So there was nothing uh, open except medical and, and food kind of resources. Uh, so uh, the factory was closed for five or six weeks um, and we actually had a rocket on the pad. We were ready to go. So we had to pull it back in and, and put it back in the integration facility. And now we're just uh, we're just getting back out to launch it. Um, so the the window opens 11th of June. Um, so we'll be we're right back in it. However, the US factory, because of our US government DOD and and uh, defence contracts, we're able to continue through to support those missions. So as a result, we've we've got a, a lot of backlog of rockets. So this this next few months here, now that New Zealand is back up to 100%, um, you know I think there's one active case in the entire country now, and no no new cases for you know weeks now. So we're we're back at 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 150%. So you're going to see some launches come off pretty rapidly here to catch back up. We're hoping that we can uh, by August we can be back to uh, where we are intending to be um, with the manifest this this time during the year. But I guess as a wider, you know, customer base and industry, I think that you know the space industry. Let's let's be be realistic about it. Has enjoyed a really long, warm summer, and there's a lot of uh, a lot of companies and, and concepts and entrepreneurs that have been, you know, again, really successful investment. But you know, not all of those are going to survive, and it's 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 a really tough place to be because. You know, a, a bunch of really good ideas and entrepreneurs um, that were at the end of their runway, you know, are probably going to find themselves in trouble. But a bunch of ideas that were kind of much more spe- speculative but had good runways uh, are going to survive. So it's very unfair um, in a lot of ways. But, uh, you know, I'm really hoping that there can be some good consolidation and joining of forces to save those really good companies and teams. But what I'm what I'm not a bit a big advocate and fan of at all is uh, you know governments coming in and injecting themselves in, in certain parts of the supply chain. Um, my view is very strongly that if government wants to, to to really help the industry, they need to stimulate at the highest level, not at low levels of the parts of the supply chain. So fund programs, let programs build satellites, let rocket companies launch the satellites, let ground stations provide services, and so on. Don't come in at uh, at a rocket level, for example, and buy a bunch of rockets because that's not going to help the industry at all. So you know, I, I know that might sound funny for a rocket company to say, but um, we want we, if there's any stimulus to be to be had, we want it to be put at the highest point of the supply chain, and let everything trickle down and keep the supply chain from top to bottom in in launch and in spacecraft all in tip top condition. What parts of the supply chain are, are they getting involved with? I haven't, I haven't, I didn't, haven't seen a huge amount of examples yet. Um, but there's, there's a lot of noise in the system, um, okay. and so you know, I, I can't or nor I would want to pull out any specific examples. But uh, you know, the signal to noise ratio is is extreme, and the, you know, small launches is a classic example that's been identified as really, really under threat, and it's under threat because a lot of dumb stuff was done. Like we we 
we count 142 small launch vehicle companies in some state or form. And the absolute reality of it is, is that, you know, maybe in five, 10 years, the market will be there to support that. But even before the pandemic, there was no market to support that. Really, we see there, there was a, a big enough market opportunity for for really two providers, and one of them being a, a rideshare and one of them being a dedicated. Anything more than that, then there's oversupply in the market. So that's why I say a government coming in and buying a bunch of launches off a bunch of different small launch vehicle companies just you know to, to save them is just not it's just it's not a good idea. Yeah, and I've, and I've heard a lot of that of you know just worries about funding and it's a real threat. I'm sure. Yeah, well, I mean, the v, the VC market is closed. You know, I have a lot to do with venture capital in, in the US um, and in New Zealand, and I'm an investor myself. And everybody is is just looking after their portfolio companies. So it'll be you know nine to twelve months before pre-revenue companies are you know are put back on the books. So you know anybody out there needs to make a runway last at least twelve months. Could you tell us uh, about any differences between New Zealand and the U.S. with regard to how your workplaces have responded to the pandemic? Yeah, so um, uh, in, in New Zealand, uh, it, it was it was a hard shutdown. So everybody worked from home where they, they could. Um, you know, some of the design team and analysis team actually uh, were probably more pro- more productive in some programs because they weren't bugged by production. But uh, you know, basically for for six weeks, it was a complete shutdown. You know, but New Zealand is now at the point where, uh, you know, there are there's, there's one active case and no new cases for a long time, so uh, it's really back to to 100%. Um, a factory in California, you know, there's still shelter in place orders up in California there in Long Beach, so we're working from home wherever we can, and we, we just built a brand new factory up there, so I think it's it's like a thousand square feet per person, uh, so, so social distancing is not too much of a problem in that factory. Right. So, but. But we've split all the shifts and in, in, in doing everything that uh, the best health guidance is providing. And then our launch pad in Wallops, Virginia, NASA has been uh, in a state of lockdown as well. So that has been a bit of a challenge. But I think we're starting to free up a bit up there as well because we have that launch out of LC2 coming in August. So the, the biggest challenge actually is uh, getting people across from New Zealand to America and, and vice versa. That's that's probably the biggest challenge mm-hmm. because at either end, at either end, there's two-week quarantine period. So you have to kind of allow for two weeks um, in, in every schedule of, of just sitting in a hotel room. Yeah, that's that would be a challenge. Well, I'm glad things are going so well there in New Zealand. That's that's good. Hopefully, we we follow suit. Um, well, I wouldn't. I wouldn't. I wouldn't. Yeah. I'd say we've we've had a wonderful health out, outcome, but you know, as a, as an economic outcome, shutting everything down was pretty brutal. So we'll, we'll see. Yeah. Uh, we'll see. I think someone's gonna. There's going to be a lot of really great uh, PhDs and theses written on what is what is the best approach here. So we'll see. The economics of it all. Yeah. Yep. Kind of shifting gears, uh, you've been working on designs for interplanetary missions to Venus and beyond. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. So um, it was, oh gosh, when was that? Probably about a year ago now, um, maybe slightly more. We actually funded a PhD student, Richard Hunter, to go away and uh, and see what you could do. Uh, with a high-energy photon at a satellite platform and, and how far could you get? It was, it was just a little project I wanted to run in the background. I have a, a deep passion for Venus and I wanted to see if I could get to Venus. And uh, and also uh, at the same, almost you know six months later, another Richard, uh, Richard French, who uh, used uh, some of that work to, to, to try and see what we could get to the moon. And um, so the two Richards, 
really were able to optimise some pretty tricky trajectories and out-popped out uh, a concept that, yes, we in fact could get something to the Moon and we could get something to Venus and, and Mars. So it, it's almost um, you know, perfect, but uh, at the same time, NASA was working on a small spacecraft called Capstone to get into, you know, to go to cislunar orbit. And um, we'd, we'd been working on this project in the background to ultimately try and get Pete to Venus, but equally well, if you can get to Venus, you can easily get to the moon. So uh, we developed a, a, a photon, a high energy photon satellite stage where uh, it's, it's pretty cool maneuvering. So we go up into a, into a low Earth orbit to start with. And over a period of eight days, we do these ever increasing apogee burns where we end up in a very, very elliptical uh, trajectory. And uh, and then finally, you know, you know, we slingshot on the Earth each time, and and we, we get enough energy to do one last burn to head out onto a TLI, and um, we uh, we head out onto a, a trajectory to the Moon, which takes us about 1.3 million kilometres away. Then we do another little manoeuvre, and it slings us back into the influence of the Moon's gravitational field. And uh, it's it's you know, the, there's a couple of really wonderful things about this. Is you know, you can go to the Moon now for 10, 15 million dollars, or even, you know, Venus or Mars. So the most exciting thing, I think, for me, this evolutionary platform we've, we've developed is, you know, the access for planetary and, you know, lunar science is, is just ridiculously cheap now. So, you know, we're, we're hoping some really amazing discoveries are going to be made, and it's, we're just, you know, uh, super excited with the first capstone mission launching in February to, to be able to be a part of it. And just one final question, uh, where do you hope to see the aerospace industry in 50 years? 50 years? Goodness That's a long way. <laughs> I measure everything at Rocket Lab in days, not, not even weeks or months, or let alone years. Um, well, I, I, I hope we're still living on Earth. That would be a, that would be a, bad, a bad day if, if we, we had to live somewhere other than Earth. Um, so I hope we don't screw, screw that up. But look, I think in, in, in 50 years' time, if you, if you go back through the history and evolution of the human species, you know, we're, we're in a time of development that is, it's beyond exponential. Like, the, the curve is vertical. The difference between 200 years ago and 500 years ago is not much at all. Um, and then even more, you go back 1,000 years ago and 10,000 years ago, once again, it's almost no different. You keep going back and, and, you know, the delta between each of those kind of major points of the human species is pretty flat. So the only way I can answer this is is kind of a mathematical deduction in, in the fact that if we stay on the same trajectory of kind of exponential development, then in 50 years' time, man, we probably will be on another in another solar system somewhere. Yeah, it could be pretty great. Moon so, settlements, uh, Mars settlements. Oh, that's a given. I mean, if that's a given. If if that hasn't happened, then there will be an evolutionary regression if that hasn't happened. So, you know, I, I would say that, that that's a given. You know, the bigger hope I have is that the human spirit evolves with you know, the pace of technology and we're still not fighting each other over stupid things like fossilised dinosaurs in the ground and, and people have got enough food to eat and those kinds of things. Th those things probably mean more to me than you know, if we're standing on Mars or not. Well put. Well, thank you for your time today, Peter. It's It's been a real pleasure speaking with you. Likewise, super fun. And that concludes this episode of the Space Foundation Space for You podcast. You can subscribe to this podcast and leave us a review on Podbean, Apple Podcasts, and on Google Play. 
Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. And of course, on our website, spacefoundation.org, where you can also learn about the various ways you can support the Space Foundation. And all these outlets and more, it's our goal to inspire, educate, connect, and advocate for the space community. Because at the Space Foundation, we will always have space for you. Thanks for listening.